Welcome to Football is for Footballers, the podcast that brings you the detailed perceptions into the world of women's football. Hey everybody, and welcome to the first ever podcast in our highly anticipated series on women's football. There is so much currently propelling women's football into the forefront of the public eye. Whether it be the attendance records broken globally, media featuring more content on the developments being made at domestic level, or even the build-up to this summer's Women's World Cup in France. And for this reason alone, we already have a buffet of interesting topics to sink our teeth into, including today's five major talking points on the history of women's football, the stereotypical negativity, the positive influence women's football has on gender equality and female empowerment, even the incredible record-breaking achievements in the current game, and then also the interesting unknown entity that women's football is still to so many. So whether you are already a wholehearted fan of the women's game, or actually just looking for your first educational avenue into the sport. We want you to listen, learn, and construct your own connections to women's football through our brief insights into the exciting focus areas today. So starting with point number one, women's football has overcome extraordinary historical impediments. Now, many of the first female football clubs and leagues date back to similar beginnings of their male counterparts, with many participating in the sport as early as the 1880s or 1890s. It is actually incomprehensible to see such a wave of difference in the prosperity within football for the two different genders. Yet, analysing even for a brief moment the history in Brazil, or the UK, the US, or even Japan, it becomes abundantly clear why women's football has suffered such inexcusable trials and tribulations. Starting off in Brazil, the social stigma that surrounded females playing a man's sport surprisingly led to the country making it illegal for women to play football between 1941 and 1979. This wasn't just on a professional level either. The law umbrella professional, grassroots, and even educational participation. And despite the law being lifted, women were still exposed to the machismo that surrounded the sport. And then with the success of the men's national team, and then talented players making big moves all across Europe, all funding, focus and support was filtered into male football. The worst part of this all was that it left women having to walk almost two hours further away from their actual local club to just find the training facilities to play on. They had to wash their own kits, find their own transportation to and from matches, and then on top of that, they actually had to pay for it as well. And even now, such is the lack of ambition to improve women's football in the country, that a prestigious club like Santos has actually had to shut down their female team due to a lack of funding, and then the extravagant contracts that these male players have eaten up all the finances that there actually were in the first place for the women's team. The UK having experienced attendances as large as 53,000 to a women's match at Goodison Park in 1920, have also suffered a similarly inexcusable trepidation. Having proven its success to compete alongside the men's game, and with more than 150 established women's sides, 
The FA made the awful decision to ban women's football from its club grounds with a view that football was unsuitable for women. Whilst the ban in 1921 didn't outlaw playing football, the decision to forbid matches at grounds meant the game became recreational, effectively killing it off altogether. Because quite honestly, who would want to turn up to a match in a local park and bring your own deck chair to sit on? Certainly not me. Despite the FA lifting the ban at the end of the 1960s, and then the women's FA establishing itself in 1969, progression of the sport was awfully slow. It wasn't until 1983 that the FA and WFA created an affiliation to run women's leagues in the country. But by this time, over half a century of potential progress had been completely lost, whilst the men's game had continued to grow at free will. Now this is not to say that they would have been on a level playing field if the exodus hadn't occurred, but you can guarantee the levels would have been considerably closer than they actually are right now. In comparison to the European early origins of football, the US were considered late bloomers. It was only in 1972, with the legislation mandating gender equity in education, that women's soccer was given its first chance at a competitive level, even if that wasn't an educational environment. College teams were initially introduced in the early 1980s, and despite the surge of positive influence the NCAA brought to women's football with their financial aid in 1982, the partnership ousted many of the leading and knowledgeable female administrators to male superiors. After suffering to put together consistent performances and struggling to deal with the regular joining and disbanding of match squads, the women's national side fell further behind their international rivals, despite the boom of participation at a female level. It was only in light of FIFA establishing the Women's World Championship that the US actually took notice of the chance they had to establish themselves as the powerhouse of women's football. And since then, they've never looked back, becoming the most successful international women's side with four Olympic gold medals, three World Cup titles, and the chance to add another World Cup trophy this summer. Even in a country like Japan, it was a rare sight to behold to come across a female playing football prior to the 1960s. The sport was played by all within schools for educational purposes, but there was no recorded form of any organised match. Leagues and tournaments to establish a stronger brand for women's football were introduced in major cities. But it was only the school teams that dominated the leagues, and this obviously put a lopsided perception on how successful women's football was. The establishment of a first official national side did actually reinforce the fact that schoolgirls couldn't win games. A new professional structure was needed to be put in place, but once again, this was not supported by the National Association. Players therefore had to take time out from work, university, and school to play for the country abroad, mainly having to pay for everything themselves, and also sacrificing their career and livelihood in the process. Similar to the US, it was only when FIFA introduced major women's championships that the country started to pay more attention to the work and support that was needed, and women's football domestically and internationally finally started to grow. The sad reality is that having investigated women's football in four different countries across four different continents, all have fallen so far behind men's football based on a lack of interest, support, and cultural acceptance from the political, business, governmental, and administrative figures within those countries. And what I can see is even worse, 
is that despite the positive strides that are being made right now, I can't get my head around the idea that there was such a high level of proactivity to the development of men's football in the past, yet a more cowardly sense of reactivity to developing women's football based on the development programs set out by FIFA and member associations. Point number two. Women's football goes against all stereotypes. Being personally involved in the sport myself, as a head coach of Solentuna women's team here in Sweden, I cannot tell you how many times I have overheard the snickers and remarks about women's football being slow, or boring, overly emotional, or lacking technical superiority. But these comments, quite sadly, are trivial in comparison to the torrent of suffering female footballers have felt and continue to feel within their own countries. Five-time best female footballer Marta Vieira da Silva has repeatedly shared her struggles growing up playing the game, with her family not approving of her contributing to the sport, which girls were not allowed to play as it was incompatible with their nature. Still to this day, the negative perception of young girls trying to get into the game is preventing such future stars as 14-year-old Laura Pigatine from developing in her home country and therefore having to look abroad to try and continue her dream. Derogatory terms and hurtful observations on lesbianism are also rife within women's football. Despite the fact that women have a much more open stance to their sexuality than male athletes do, men are still able to play the sport, whilst women in some countries are ridiculed for it, or even banned from playing. As little as five years ago, FIFA actually had to take preliminary steps to investigate if Nigeria had banned lesbians from playing in the West African nation. After Nigerian head of women's football league Dilachuku Onyandima said that lesbian players should be ostracized, or in her words, any player that we find associated with it will be disqualified, footballing figures realized something had to change. And despite the FIFA efforts to rectify the issue, Nigerian law stating homosexuality is illegal has always been a massive deterrent for females looking to pursue a career in the sport and has made it trouble ground for change. Colombia was left red-faced after the president of domestic football club, Deportes Tolima, had to make a public apology for his horrifically wounding remarks on women footballers. President Camargo, at a press conference, actually said that, apart from the problems you get with women, and that they are more addicted to alcohol than men, apart from that, I tell you, it's a tremendous lesbian breeding ground. And now a comment made by anyone on any normal day such as this, is maddening. But the sad matter is that a professional that owns a football club within the football industry has said something like this publicly, and the only action taken is a public apology, is exasperating. No further punishment. Nothing more done about it. Just a slap on the wrist, and they sweep it under the carpet once again. Even in a country as supposedly politically correct as the UK, reports have emerged of a 13-year-old girl who dreams of playing professional football but having to fight a daily battle of criticism and being called a lesbian for apparently playing a boys' sport. What I find even worse about this is the fact that her educators were advising her to play netball or hockey instead. What sort of message is that meant to send to young girls? African, Asian, and South American countries are still forced to feel the cultural and religious aversion to women being involved in any form of football. In Cameroon, football is seen as a sport only for men, 
Women lead secluded lives between their home and places of study. And gender-based violence remains a major concern in a country with the second highest child marriage rate. Such stereotypical constraints have disheartened young girls from expressing themselves, especially in sport. And regardless of the successes at the Canadian World Cup, and even UNFPA-supported football competitions and education schemes to promote reproductive health, the numbers are still not increasing anywhere near as much as they should be. As much as participation is an issue for the previously spoken about countries, in Iran, women aren't even allowed to go and watch a game. Iran's men's-only stadium policies are part of a larger pattern of discrimination and human rights violations on the basis of gender. Women face discrimination in personal status laws, such as marriage, divorce, child custody, and even dress code, as well as hiring discrimination in the workforce and restrictions on travel. And having seen Saudi Arabia lift their ban on women being allowed into stadiums, Iran is working on doing the same, but sadly not for the right reasons. Despite females defiantly posting photos on social media and previous efforts of Human Rights Watch, Iran are removing the ban with the intentions of hosting international tournaments and reaping the benefits of major events. So basically, I guess money and awareness is over equality then. To think that growing up playing football for local clubs, my actual problems about playing for the first team fall into insignificance in the sheltered and privileged environment I was in simply based on my gender. The fact that women, whether it's as fans, players or even staff, continue to play the game in countries all over the world, despite all of these horrific barriers, is inspirational and inconceivable intertwined. Point number three. Women's football campaigns have become an inspirational driving force in female empowerment and gender equality. Now, it isn't just on the surface that women's football is trying to increase the visibility and interest in its own sport. It has now become an important vessel of change for females. The hurdles to climb over in the sport are easily relatable to the problems females suffer in any working environment. Lack of opportunity, support, acceptance, professionalism and understanding have put off many women and girls pursuing a career in football. And this is sadly not dissimilar to those applying for jobs, management positions, or specialised roles in any form of business. And in this pursuit of a better footballing future, women's football has found a voice that unites females from all different industries, with a common goal, better gender equality and female empowerment. A message I believe that is felt strongly for all now, more than ever before. For that reason, we have taken a look at some of the media campaigns that have recently become inspirational tools to those playing on the pitch, but also outside of it too. And the first campaign we looked at is the hashtag WePlayStrong campaign. UEFA launched this groundbreaking initiative with one primary goal in sight, to change the perceptions of women's football and motivate more girls to play the sport. Having identified the late teen years as a breaking point in the continuation of football for females, the campaign is focused around driving a change in perception of it not being as cool to play the sport anymore after a certain age. In combination with the 55 European football associations, the campaign raised major interest in its first year in 2017, 
and also working on guiding females on social media usage. The campaign was viewed over 200 million times. And with that, 73% of teenage girls who viewed the campaign expressed an interest in playing football. And then almost this cherry on top of the cake? 17,000 used this supporting app to actually find places close to them to try football out. The campaign was not only supported by its creators, but by football freestyle superstar Liv Cook and international players Ada and Andrine Hirgabari, Marin Mielda, Lauren James, Jordan Nobbs, Fran Kirby, and Alex Greenwood. And as the reputation rose, so did the scope of interested influencers, such as global artist Rita Ora. These partnerships have allowed greater visibility and engagement to many differing demographics, as well as breaking away from football and highlighting female empowerment and equality as a whole. And through celebrating the physical, emotional and mental strength of women and girls across Europe, the campaign has helped families find a location for females to play football. And the best bit of all, it has increased participation by 337% with the figure showing no signs of slowing down. Another campaign is hashtag MeToo. And whilst it was not specifically birthed in football, it has made significant inroads into the sporting industry on both the male and female side. The movement, specifically outlying and fighting against sexual harassment and assault, was first popularised by Alyssa Milano on Twitter in 2017, who pled with victims to tweet about their awful experiences and actually give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And such is the power of the movement, the former players are standing forward and urging others to do the same. Yuli Faudi, formerly of the US women's national soccer team and now on ESPN, has spoken to journalists to say that while she has never been sexually harassed herself, the stories she has heard from others within the industry were shocking, and that these power dynamics in a male-dominated platform, they occur on a daily basis. Columbia chose to open their own hashtag MeToo movement after a former physiotherapist who had worked with the national under-17 team had been targeted by sexual predator, and get this, coach Didier Luna. And after it became clear that some of the players themselves at the time had been subjected to similar targeting, Colombian journalist Alejandro Pino wrote in the media that now there is a generation of players, especially women, who are educated and are aware that they can demand the right to be respected. And hashtag MeToo has given Colombian women the empowerment to speak out against discrimination and sexual harassment. The same horrors were experienced by members of the Afghanistan women's football team on their training camp in Jordan by, get this, two members of the Afghanistan Football Federation. And after suffering the sexual harassment, the Football Federation had the audacity to deny the allegations to the point where FIFA had to get involved. Despite receiving insults and the cultural barriers within the country, players have said that talking about the matter has been made easier by the inspirational movements of other players and athletes doing the same. Now just sitting here and trying to take that all in, I don't think we should underestimate how much of an impact is being made by the way in which women can speak out about their experiences. Because they're not just represented in the news, in media, in films or in matches anymore, but everywhere. Until the internet came along, there weren't these conversations about what it's like to be a woman, what it's like to walk down the street and be harassed and catcalled. No one knew about the idea of everyday sexism, and that includes me. 
The fact that more athletes and players have the confidence to do this inspires others from all different industries to feel empowered and speak out against the harassment and abuse. And if it can manage to inspire other footballers to do the same, then the campaign is doing exactly what it set out to do. In 2018, Women in Football launched a brand new campaign for the hashtag What If. The main goal? Bring together influential brands, publishers, voices in sport, and pledge to make actual real changes. And driven predominantly through social media platforms, the idea looks at empowering businesses, celebrities, and members of the public to identify one way they could take action to contribute to an improvement for women and girls within the football industry. And since the campaign has begun, there has been a wave of support. Sky Sports have introduced female studio pundits to their football programmes. Sporf has amplified the reach of women's football by fully integrating coverage of the women's game on online communities. Twitter has created a specific and unique emoji for What If. Betfair has ring-fenced 50% of their cash for clubs grassroots grants for women's teams to help support their growth and sustainability. And even fours of football have made live score updates and results for women's football games easily accessible across the world. And the beauty of all these campaigns is that now even prolific clubs, such as FC Barcelona, have shown their support for greater gender equality with their new hashtag WeAreFootballers campaign. Promoted for International Women's Day, the club, supported by their stars Lika Martins, Vicky Lasada, Marta Torrejon, and Leila Okwabi, created a moving video to highlight all the incredible experiences that you believe you can only experience in a men's game are the exact same in a women's match. And that it's not just for boys. It's not even just for girls. But football is for footballers. Moving to point number four. Women's football is continuously breaking records. Now the last two years alone have been groundbreaking for women's football, especially for the continuous tumbling of records worldwide. Match attendances have skyrocketed since the monumental success of the European Women's Championship in the Netherlands in 2017. Over 178 million TV and online viewers tuned in for matches throughout the competition, whilst 240,000 match-going fans basked in the beautiful weather and electric atmosphere in and outside the stadiums across the three-week competition. And since then, international friendies have repeatedly bettered previous figures, including Korea and Sweden smashing their previous national records in the last few weeks alone. On top of that, Domestic records have been demolished in Mexico, the UK, Italy and Spain, with Atletico Madrid losing 2-0 to Primera Division rivals Barcelona in front of a world record 60,739 at the Wanda Metropolitano in March. And when you look at it, given the astronomical rise in figures for matches, and then the World Cup less than a month away, there is honestly little to suggest the momentum won't continue into this summer's ultimate showpiece, and beyond. And if we go away from the stands and onto the prize-giving podiums, the best female athletes were finally included in the prestigious Ballon d'Or prize-giving ceremony. For the first time in the award's existence, there was a winner from both the men's and women's game, with Norway's Ada Hirgebari taking home the prize after her exceptional performances for Olympic Lyonnais and her part in them winning the Champions League last year. But despite the groundbreaking success, 
controversy still managed to creep into the moment in the form of the moronic twerking comments made to her by French DJ Martin Solvig. MVPs, player of the season trophies, and even European awards for the best players in their respective leagues. Whilst it might be perceived by everyone as the least that should be expected for both forms of football, it is a huge step in the right direction for placing female and male athletes on the same podium for their contributions to the game. And when you look at it, it is this sort of recognition that grows the images of footballers, generates social influences, and allows women's football to create its own brand without wrongly perceived as piggybacking their male colleagues. And given the growth in support and awareness, finally sponsors are making conscious efforts to support teams, leagues, and players within women's football. Nike have recently displayed some of the best female footballers in their marketing campaigns, with players such as Lucy Bronze and Steph Houghton from the UK as well, striking their own deals with Virgin Media and Sainsbury's. And as well as the individual achievements, leagues such as the English WSL has received its first major sponsor, £10 million on a three-year deal with Barclays. Sasol has continued its sponsorship of South Africa women's domestic football, with the main purpose of empowering women through the sport. Whilst mogul Jack Ma, after watching their recent silver medal achievement in the Asia Games and being proud of their fighting spirit, is now working on a sponsorship agreement with the Chinese women's national setup, with the hopes of providing funding for travel, accommodation, facilities, and materials for the professional side. And even in the face of crowd surges, awards, and sponsorship support, historical and groundbreaking achievements are continuing to transpire, and this time in the form of Stephanie Frappart, becoming the first female referee of a League One match two weeks ago. She successfully managed the Amiens versus Strasbourg game, and this makes me so happy for two reasons. One, it opens the door for other females to referee high-profile games. And two, well, it inspires young girls further to follow in her footsteps. Point number five, women's football is an unknown entity to many. Looking on a domestic level, men's football has kind of lost its predictability. Seasons are nearing their close, and except for the MLS, I could predict winners across all major competitions, or at least the top two, and so could you. Rather depressingly, the best are getting stronger and propelling themselves further away from the competition, whilst the money included in the game has just made it rather sickening. This is one of the reasons why esports, and especially FIFA, has taken on so much interest. People are heavily invested in playing the game, and as technology continues to improve, so does the worth of the game, the money invested in the sport, and the realistic chance of achieving fame, riches, and an easier route to meeting your footballing idols from just behind a TV screen. Let's face it, it costs less to watch, is more attractive to Generation Z audiences, you don't necessarily have to travel anywhere, and especially if you play the game, you have more control of the outcome and being a closer part of a community. So if a computer game can bring about a new audience and a new branch of interest to football, why in the world can't women's football too? Well, from what I see, given the investment coming in, the increased media coverage, and talented players making official moves to clubs all over the world, there is finally a sense of real buzz around. Training facilities are getting better, and the quality of coaching education given to those wanting to get into women's football, or in fact more females, has improved the overall quality of performances. 
rather than just being subjected to a tournament on the TV screen once every four years, much like the Olympics. There is now more content for supporters and viewers to continue to follow, to learn, and to be interested in the game after these major events. Match prices are significantly smaller, including free tickets given to families, local schools, and clubs for some of the best events on offer. Female football players are more personal on social media, interacting with fans, communicating through their own channels with greater regularity, and using their platforms as a source of sharing their experiences with those around, rather than as a source of advertisement or self-gratification. Now, after going through all of those points, quite honestly, as a fan, and that's what I am, I am looking to follow my clubs knowing that we are going to experience an entertaining match, that the investment being shown is going to continue to grow the ability of this squad, especially if some of that investment is coming from me, that I can access content from the game before, during and after, that the price is affordable, and that I feel like I might have a small chance of connecting with my role models on the pitch. But when adding all of these things up, it's actually quite hard to see those things in men's football. And I believe that my connection to that part of the game is now starting to disappear. For that reason, women's football could very well be the unknown entity that explodes into a primary interest in the face of a sport that needs a stimulating injection of new life, a bit more excitement, and a greater sense of unpredictability. So, can we relate to the difficulties the women's game has and still suffers from on a daily basis? Has it inspired you to continue to follow the developments for women and girls football everywhere? Or has it even got you interested in following the events coming up this summer? Or whatever the outcome, just scratching the surface of the historical, stereotypical, record-breaking and empowering topic areas should just serve as a tasty hors d'oeuvre that fuels this appetite to learn more along this journey into the wonderful world of women's football.